Hi, my name is Jeff Redding. I'm a preaching elder here at Walton Community Church in Monroe, Georgia. Before we begin the sermon, our church would like to invite you to join us as we gather every Sunday morning for worship at 10 a.m. You can learn more about our church on our website at waltoncommunitychurch.org. Thanks for listening. Howdy, WCC. Merry Christmas. It's good to see everybody. Every t- I have to confess, every time I hear that Luke 2 thing, I think about Charlie Brown. Linus. That's the true meaning of Christmas, Charlie Brown. All right. Uh, if you have your Bibles, turn with me to Luke chapter 1. And as you're turning, I should mention this. Uh, George and Daniel and David, they've done a great job of preaching uh, on various topics of Advent, on joy and peace and hope. And I want to tell you that I got confused about what I was supposed to preach on. So first I was pre- thought I was preaching on joy, and then I was, thought I was preaching on hope. And actually, I had a really good sermon on hope. Y'all, y'all missed it. I'm sorry y'all missed that one. Um, so I got confused, and I just gave up. And so today I'm just going to go through a passage in Luke 1. I, I, so we're going to go through a narrative in Luke 1. I love these stories early on in Luke 1 and 2. And today we're going to look at the account of the angel Gabriel announcing to Zechariah about the birth of John the Baptist. And so I hope you'll indulge me because I just love going walking through the narrative and um, thinking about it, and then I'll have some thoughts at the end. So one of the things, just, just from the jump that we see here, is in these accounts in the first part of Luke, is we see that God is in control, that God is sovereign. He, when the Father sent his Son to become man, he made sure that every single prophecy in the Old Testament was fulfilled and that every detail really mattered. And it's really beautiful when you start seeing about all these prophecies in the Old Testament. So we see God's sovereignty on full display when the Son of God, the second person of the Trinity, came down from heaven at Christmas and took on flesh and became a man so that he would become our Savior. And that's what we see in these narratives in, in uh, Luke 1 and 2. But Luke actually begins his account with the birth of John the Baptist. So it's important for us to know that John the Baptist was not a minor character. John was really an important figure. And he fulfilled this Old Testament prophecy about this Elijah-type figure coming before as a forerunner to the Messiah. So John the Baptist was this huge figure. He was actually very, very popular in the day um, when he was doing his ministry. But again, he was the forerunner of the Messiah, the Lord Jesus, and we're going to see some of that today in Luke 1. So let's walk through the passage. We're going to begin in Luke 1, verse 5. And so we're just going to read little sections, and I'm going to make comments as we go through, and at the end I'll have some thoughts. So Luke 1, beginning in verse 5, 5 and 6, says this. It says, In the days of Herod, king of Judea, there was a priest named Zechariah of the division of Abijah. And he had a wife from the daughters of Aaron, and her name was Elizabeth. And they were both righteous before God, walking blamelessly in all the commandments and statutes of the Lord. So Zechariah is a priest. His wife's name is Elizabeth, and she also is a descendant of Aaron, which was the line of priests. And notice in verse 6, it says they were both righteous before God, walking blamelessly in all the commandments and statutes of the Lord. Now, this doesn't mean they were sinless, but what it's saying is that they truly loved the Lord and they were living for him. And this is significant because at this time, you can see this in the gospel accounts, the priesthood was corrupt. Many of the religious rulers of the day were very corrupt. They were hypocritical. They were power hungry. 
But what I love about this is even during this time of wickedness and corruption, we see that there are these humble and lowly people who have genuine faith in God. And this is what Zechariah and Elizabeth were. As I said, they weren't without sin, but when it says that they were righteous before God and walking blamelessly, this means that the general course of their lives, the direction of their lives, was a path of godly obedience. They loved God, and they were truly seeking to follow him. So Zechariah and Elizabeth were not famous people. They were humble people, lowly people, and they loved the Lord, and they were living for him. And what we're reminded of is that God always has his remnant of faithful people. It may not be a large group, but God always has a people who are faithful to him. Even during corrupt times, even during times when there's a lot of wickedness in the culture, God has his remnant. And God will always preserve a group of people with genuine faith who are truly following him and living lives of obedience and love. And that's super encouraging to me. All right, verse 7 says this, but they had no child. They had no child because Elizabeth was barren and both were advanced in years. So Zechariah and Elizabeth had no kids. We don't know how old they are. It just says they're advanced in years. But whatever it is, Elizabeth is beyond childbearing age. She's too old to have a baby. And this was significant because at this time, it was really shameful not to have kids. And people took that as a sign of God being displeased with them. People thought that not having children meant you were not blessed by God. Now, it's completely false. And you can see that here because Elizabeth and Zechariah are loved by the Lord. They're walking blamelessly before him. But anyway, that's what people thought at the time. Our verses 8 through 10, it says, Now, while he, Zechariah, was serving as priest before God, when his division was on duty... According to the custom of the priesthood, he was chosen by lot to enter the temple of the Lord and burn incense. And the whole multitude of the people were praying outside at the hour of incense. So Zechariah, as I said, he's a priest. His division of priests, this group of priests he belonged to, the division of Abijah, they were serving in the temple at this time. And on this occasion, Zechariah was chosen by lot to enter the temple and to burn incense. So what I've, what I've read about this, my understanding is this would have been a once-in-a-lifetime thing. It was like him winning the lottery, like the priestly lottery, like the mega millions for priests or something. So his time came up, and he was given this great privilege to go into the temple and burn incense. This is the only time in his life he will ever walk into the temple. So now he wouldn't go into the holy of holies. He wouldn't go into the innermost part of the temple, but he would go into the holy place, and he'd be the only one in there. So this is, as I said, this is a once-in-a-lifetime opportunity because after a priest served in the temple, basically they would take his name out and he would never have another opportunity to do this. All right, so this is a huge deal for Zechariah. He's been a priest for decades. He's never been in the temple before. In the past, he's been doing priestly duties. He's been serving in the courtyard of the temple and offering sacrifice and cutting up animals. A lot of times priests were more like butchers, really, and that's what he was doing, but he had never been inside the temple. So when he goes into the temple, his job was to burn incense on the altar. And as I said, he's the only one in there. And as he enters, there's this crowd outside the temple who are praying. So Zechariah walks into the temple. It's very dark. And he starts to perform his priestly duties by burning incense. Okay? All right, let's find out what happens next. Verse 11. And there appeared to him, <clears throat> appeared to him an angel of the Lord 
standing on the right side of the altar of incense. So we've got this altar of incense in the temple. Zechariah's burning incense. He's doing his duties and all this. And all of a sudden, an angel is standing at the right side of the altar of incense. Now remember, it's very dark in there. And Zechariah is the only one who's supposed to be in there. And now he sees this angel standing there beside the altar. We don't know exactly what this angel looks like. We learn his name is Gabriel later on. But in other places in scripture, when an angel appeared, they look like a man and they may have this glow about him. Okay? Maybe that's what's happened here. So as I said, Zechariah is standing there doing his duties. And then all of a sudden, this this angel appears there. Look at verse 12. It said, and Zechariah was troubled when he saw him, and fear fell upon him. I bet Zechariah is troubled, right? I bet he's terrified. Because when an angel shows up, that's a sign that God is about to deliver a special message. And this has got to be frightening. Maybe the angel is going to tell Zechariah that his life is over. We don't know. But fear fell upon Zechariah, and he was terrified. Verse 13, it said, but the angel said to him, Do not be afraid, Zechariah, for your prayer has been heard, and your wife Elizabeth will bear you a son, and you shall call his name John. So this angel is very kind. He tells Zechariah, don't be afraid. Also notice this, the angel knows the name of both Zechariah and his wife Elizabeth. I think that's awesome. God knows their names, and the angel knows their names. And I love this because this should remind us that God knows your name. He knows you. Then the angel says, your prayer has been heard, right? Your prayer has been heard. What prayer? What, what, what prayer do you think the angel's referring to? At first I thought, clearly this is the prayer for a child because we've already been told that they, they have no kids. So I'm sure Zechariah and Elizabeth were praying for a baby, and now their prayer has been heard. And I think that's right. But also, I've been thinking about this. Remember, they're advanced in years. Elizabeth is beyond the age of childbearing at this time. And so here's my thought. I'm guessing that they prayed for a child for a long time, but I'm guessing also they stopped praying at some point. They stopped praying for this. And I think this is huge as well. That one of the things that faithful Jews like Zechariah and Elizabeth prayed for, especially at this time, was the coming of the Messiah. At this time in Israel, the anticipation for the Messiah was at a fever pitch. Because there had been prophecies, like from the book of Daniel, that counted down the years when the Messiah would come. And at this time, the Jewish people were really anticipating that the Messiah was just about to come. And many of them were praying for the Messiah. Now, again, when the angel says, don't be afraid, your prayer has been heard, I do think he's talking about your prayer for a child. At least in the past, they prayed for that. But I also believe the angel is saying, your prayer for the Messiah has been heard. And at this point, I would ask you, just in your own life, are you praying, not just for things for you and your own family, but are you praying for big kingdom-focused prayers? Are you praying big prayers for the glory of God? Are you praying that people would come to faith in Jesus Christ? Do you pray for revival, that Christ's kingdom would be expanded, that his people would live lives of faithfulness and obedience? Again, do you pray for big kingdom-focused prayers? Because I'm confident that Zechariah and Elizabeth were praying for big things like that. 
All right, so the angel says, Zechariah, your prayer has been heard, and your wife Elizabeth will bear you a son. You shall call his name John. Look at, let's look at verses 14 to 17. The angel's still speaking. He says, and you will have joy and gladness, and many will rejoice at his, John's, birth, for he will be great before the Lord. And he must not drink wine or strong drink, and he will be filled with the Holy Spirit, even from his mother's womb. And he will turn many of the children of Israel to the Lord their God. And he, John, will go before him in the spirit and power of Elijah to turn the hearts of the fathers to the children and the disobedient to the wisdom of the just to make ready for the Lord a people prepared. This is awesome. The angel gives all these wonderful promises about the kind of man that Zechariah's son will be. And again, he's talking about John the Baptist. A few things stand out. I'm not going to cover everything in this, but a few things stand out here. One, John will be great before the Lord. He will be important. He will be significant in the Lord's plan. Also, John will be filled with the Holy Spirit, even before he's born. You can see that later on in Luke. The angel also says that Zechariah's son, John, later to be known as John the Baptist, will be used by God to turn many of the Jewish people to the Lord. And in verse 17, the angel says that Zechariah's son will go before the Lord, God himself. Notice that. Look, do you see that? Look in verse 17. It says that God will go before him. And who's the him? Well, if you look back in verse 16, it's the Lord their God. So John will go before the Lord their God. John will be the forerunner of God himself. What's interesting about this, even this early on, we see that the Messiah, the Lord Jesus, is God. It's a great little, little hint about that, so that the Messiah is divine. So John will be a forerunner to the Messiah. John the Baptist will prepare a way for the coming Savior, the Lord Jesus, who is God. Also, John's ministry, it says, will be in the spirit and power of Elijah. That's what the angel tells him in verse 17. And this was a prophecy from the book of Malachi. Listen, you don't have to turn them, but this is Malachi chapter 4, verses 5 and 6. Listen to this. It says, Behold, God, God is speaking. God says, Behold, I will send you Elijah the prophet before the great and awesome day of the Lord comes. And then you hear this familiar phrase that the angels just used. This is from Malachi. And he will turn the hearts of, of fathers to their children and the hearts of children to their fathers. So Zechariah would have known this prophecy from the book of Malachi. And, and the angel is telling Zechariah that his son John is going to fulfill this role of Elijah to prepare the way for the Messiah. Now again, remember, Zechariah is standing in the temple, right? And the angel, he's at the altar, and the angel has appeared in the temple, in this dark temple. And the angel is telling Zechariah all these wonderful things about Zechariah's son to be born, who's John, and how he will fulfill all these great prophecies about the Messiah. And again, we don't, just as a reminder, we don't know what the angel looked like, but he was probably shining. He probably looked like he was on fire or something. And the angel tells Zechariah all these things. So what is Zechariah's response? Does he say, praise the Lord that the Messiah is coming God's word is going to be fulfilled. My son will fulfill this prophecy about Elijah preparing the way for the Lord about redemption. Praise God. Is that what Zechariah says? No, it isn't. Let's look at verse 18. Zechariah said to the angel, 
How shall I know this? For I'm an old man and my wife is advanced in years. This is a good lesson on what not to say if God ever sends you an angel, okay? Don't say this. If if God ever sends an angel to speak to you, don't say this because what Zechariah is doing, he says, I know you're an angel, you've said all these things, but how shall I know this? In other words, how can I know what, what you're saying is true? And then he says this, he says, he says, for I'm an old man. The word old man is where we get the word Presbyterian, means elder, okay? So literally, Zachariah says, how shall I know this, for I'm a Presbyterian. (laughs) So, so Zachariah's a Presbyterian and his son John comes along and cleans up his theology and becomes a Baptist, right? (laughs) I'm just kidding. I actually feel at home, more at home with Presbyterians than I do Southern Baptists usually. In fact, the one, maybe I shouldn't say this, the one time I went to a Southern Baptist event, there were two words that came to mind, greasy and creepy. That was the, that was the feel I got at a Southern Baptist. All right, sorry. Actually, not sorry. Um, all right, back to the story. We've got Zechariah the Presbyterian, his son John the Baptist, and when Zechariah says, how shall I know this, he's basically saying, I want a sign. I want a miracle. I want proof. He says, I want proof that what you're saying is true. So Zechariah is saying, I don't care that an angel just told me that my wife is going to have a son, that he's going to be the forerunner of the Messiah. I'm not going to believe that unless I get a miracle because I'm an old man and my wife is old. All right? Again, don't say that to an angel. So Zechariah asked for a sign, and you know what? The angel is going to give him a sign. The angel is going to perform a miracle. Now, it's not going to be the sign that Zechariah wants, but the angel is going to give him a sign. Look at verse 19. And the angel answered him, I am Gabriel. I stand in the presence of God. And I was sent to speak to you and to bring you this good news. The angel says, you want proof what I'm saying is true? He says, listen, I'm Gabriel. I stand in the presence of God. He says, I'm Gabriel. I stand in the courts of heaven in the presence of Almighty God. And at this point, he could have said, like, drop mic, right? Like, that's all you need to say. But he didn't. Instead, Gabriel keeps on talking. He says, not only do I stand in the presence of God, not only do I do the bidding of Almighty God, but I was sent on an important mission to bring you this good news. And that word good news is literally gospel. So he says, I was sent by God to bring you this gospel. And then in verse 20, Gabriel gives Zechariah the sign he asked for. It's not fun for Zechariah, but look at verse 20. He says, and behold, so Gabriel's talking to Zechariah. He says, behold, you will be silent. You will be silent and unable to speak until the day that these things take place because you did not believe my words which will be fulfilled in their time. So here's the sign. Gabriel says, Zechariah, you're going to be quiet. The last words you said were words of unbelief. And that's the last thing you're going to say for a long time. And you're going to be unable to speak until all these things take place. So all these things are going to happen, just like I said they were. And you're going to see them happen. But for the next nine months, you're not going to be able to talk because you did not believe my words. And right then, Zechariah is unable to speak. Now, this is just my opinion, and there's some debate on this, 
But I also think that Zechariah is struck deaf. I don't think he can hear for the next nine months. And here's why I say that. If you look down at Luke 1, verse 62, okay, this is over nine months later after John the Baptist is born. Look down at, at Luke 1, 62. And it says this, these people are communicating with Zechariah after John the Baptist has been born. Look at 62, and it says, they made signs to his father. They made signs to Zechariah, inquiring what he wanted him to be called. And he asked for a writing tablet and wrote, his name is John. Talking about John the Baptist, he's a baby. And they all wondered, and immediately his mouth was open and his tongue loosed, and he spoke, blessing God. Now again, notice the people talking to Zechariah. They've been around him for nine months, and they're making signs to him. Why would they be making signs to him? Well, I think the reason they're making signs to him is because he couldn't hear them. So when Gabriel says that you will be mute, unable to speak, that word also can be used to describe a person who is both mute and deaf. Now, again, there's some debate on this. I could be wrong. I'm not going to die on this hill. But if Zechariah became deaf and he was unable to speak, while he's in that temple, and all that happened for nine months until John the Baptist was born. If that's the case, what's interesting to me is this, that the last words he heard for the next nine months or so were the words from the angel saying, I'm Gabriel, I stand in the presence of God, and you're going to be silent for the next nine months. And then bang, he's, he's deaf and mute, okay? So that's the sign. Zechariah wanted a sign that what Gabriel was saying was true, and Gabriel gave him a sign. Then if you go back to verses 21 to 23, Luke 1, 21 to 23, remember he's in the temple and it says the people were waiting for Zechariah and they were wondering at his delay in the temple. So the angel may have been talking more, but we know this is what he said, this is what is recorded. Verse 22, and when he came out, when Zechariah came out of the temple, he was unable to speak to them and they realized that he had seen a vision in the temple and he kept making signs to them and remained mute. Okay? And when his time of service was ended, he went to his home. So remember, again, the people were gathered outside the temple waiting for Zechariah. They were praying, and they were wondering why he was delayed. It was concerning to them because when the priest would go into the temple to do his work at this time, his job was to get in there, quickly do his work, and then get out. You didn't go into the temple and goof around. You didn't go into the temple and dilly-dally around. If you want to know what happens with guys when they would go in and goof around before God, I think Daniel's going to get to this soon in Leviticus 10. You can check out the story of Nadab and Abihu. They go before the Lord and goof around. And spoiler alert, they didn't make it out alive, okay? So this is a serious thing. So the priest knew that he was standing in the presence of Almighty God, and, and this real fear was on them that God would strike you down if you went into the temple and were sinful or, or were not doing what you're supposed to do. So when Zechariah was delayed, the people were wondering what was going on. He comes out, he can't talk, and they, they realize he had seen a vision in the temple. Okay? Then it says he went back home, and I'm sure that, that he's explaining all this stuff or writing all this stuff down to his wife Elizabeth. I'm sure that all they're thinking about for the next nine months is what Gabriel said in the temple. I'm sure they're just constantly thinking about this, having this son, his name being John, the forerunner of the Messiah. I'm sure that they're just thinking about this all the time. Then verses 24 and 25, these are the last ones we're going to look at today. Verses 24 and 25. It says, after these days, 
His wife Elizabeth conceived, this elderly woman conceives, and for five months she kept herself hidden, saying, Thus the Lord has done for me in the days when he looked on me to take away my reproach among people. So again, Zechariah goes home. He's telling everything or explaining, not telling, but writing it out to Elizabeth. She gets pregnant. She keeps herself hidden, but she's very thankful to the Lord. And as I said, I'm sure that Zechariah and Elizabeth are just constantly thinking about everything that Gabriel had said to them. All right, that's, all, that's the only passage I want to look at this morning. And then I just have a few thoughts before we wrap up. And th- there are a lot of things you could say about this passage, but there are just a few that, are, that occurred to me that I want us to think about. One is this, that number one is God still speaks today. God still speaks today. The Lord spoke to Zechariah through the angel Gabriel. Not many of us are going to have an angel sent to us, right? That's a very rare, rare thing, but God still speaks to us today. In fact, in our study of Hebrews, we looked at Hebrews 3, 7, and one of the things it says is it's talking about an Old Testament passage written by David, but the writer of the Hebrews says, as the Holy Spirit says, like present tense. And what I want us to stress, what I want to stress again is that the New Testament writers understood that the Bible is God's word and the Bible is the Holy Spirit's word And when we open up the Bible and read, we're hearing what God is saying to us in the moment. God speaks to us in the moment, okay? We need to be people who are convinced that when we read the Bible, God is speaking to us, just as if he had sent an angel to us. In fact, even more importantly than he had sent an angel to us. We need to be convinced that every time we read the scriptures, the Holy Spirit's talking to us. God also speaks through his spirit And he usually does this by directing people to his word. I didn't know if I would talk about this, but I will. A couple of Sundays ago, before the Lord's Supper, I came up and and said something before the Lord's Supper. And I sensed the Lord was talking to me about Psalm 4610. I don't know if you remember me doing this. Psalm 4610 says this, Be still and know that I am God. And I had this impression, big time impression, that God wanted me to say that. And I didn't know why. I'm still not entirely certain. But I read it and I repeated it three times. Be still and know that I am God. I just had this impression from the Lord that I had to say that. Well, after the service, three different people came up to me and told me that before church on Sunday morning, they sensed the Lord speaking to them through Psalm 46.10. In that moment. One person was praying it and meditating on it before church. One person was sending an article about 4610, Psalm 4610, to a friend that that happened immediately before church. Another person was writing in her journal, be still. Okay, so before church on Sunday, three different people were hearing God say, be still and know that I am God. And then a short time later, they heard me read that passage three times before the Lord's Supper. And none of us knew that God was speaking to us through his word. Now, on occasion, the Lord does this type of thing, right? God impressed Psalm 4610 on four different people in our church at the same time, and none of us knew it was happening to anybody else. Now, I don't like to make a big deal about these types of things because we can have a tendency to focus on the special thing that God is doing rather than on his word, right? And we need to be people who focus on his word. But what I'm trying to stress is this, God still speaks today, and we need to listen to him, okay? That's number one. Number two is this, it's very brief, it's obvious, but we must believe 
God's word. We must believe God's word. Unbelief is a bad thing. We tend to excuse unbelief. We tend to excuse it in other people and we tend to excuse it in our own lives. But it's a serious sin. We see this in this passage. When Zechariah does not believe the message, Gabriel is appalled. The angel Gabriel is shocked and disappointed by Zechariah's lack of faith. And really, we should be the same thing in our own lives. When we don't believe what God is saying, we should be shocked and appalled at that. That's a serious thing. When God tells us something, we must believe it. And we must act in faith. If we refuse to believe what God says, we're sinning. We're sinning against the Lord. It's not a minor thing. So we must be people who believe what God has said. And when we think about Christmas and all that God has done to save us, the Father sending his Son to be our Savior and King, the Son of God taking on flesh, becoming man, suffering and dying for us, being raised from the dead, in light of all the tri- that the triune God has done to save us, the only right response is for us to believe his word, obey it, and rejoice in it. Okay? So that's number two. We must believe God's word. Number three is this. And you may not get this from the passage, but this is something I just sense God telling me, that God's timing is perfect. God's timing is perfect in big things that change the course of history, and God's timing is perfect even in the little details of our lives. Galatians 4.4 says this, But when the fullness of time had come, God sent forth his son. When the fullness of time had come, when the perfect time came, God sent forth his son. God's timing in huge things is perfect. Like when he fulfilled the prophecy of John the Baptist, coming in the spirit and power of Elijah to be the forerunner of the Messiah. God's timing in these huge things like the coming of Jesus is perfect. But God's timing is also perfect in little things like the details of our lives. His timing is perfect, and we're called to wait on him because God's timing is good. God's timing is not always our timing, is it? God works on his own time, but his time is best. We want things to happen, and not only do we want things to happen in a certain way, we want them to happen in a certain time. And usually that time is now, right? Usually that time is yesterday, but God's timing is not our timing. And the fact is, God often waits until it seems that there's no hope. When we're in the midst of suffering, it seems oftentimes that God waits and waits and waits. And often we think there is absolutely no possibility of us ever emerging from whatever we're going through. But it's then, only then, that God will provide. And he may do it in an unexpected way. And the reason I'm talking about this is because to Zechariah and Elizabeth, it may seem minor to us, but to Zechariah and Elizabeth, the timing of God seemed late. They were too old to have kids. And that's why Zechariah didn't believe the angel. According to Zechariah, God's timing was too late, but it wasn't. God's timing was perfect. What about this? The next section of Luke, Mary gets the news that she's going to give birth to the Messiah. My understanding is that girls at that age would be betrothed at age 12. So she's probably 13 or 14. She's not even married, and she's told, you're about to have a baby, right? I'm guessing she's thinking this should not be happening now. Now is not a good time for this, right? But God's timing is perfect, and we must believe that. We must respond to God's timing in faith. 
Maybe God's calling you to do something now, but you're trying to put it off. Maybe you don't think the timing is right, or maybe you're hoping the Lord will use someone else. But really, in your heart, you know God wants you to use you, and he wants you to use you now. Or maybe God's calling you to wait on him in patience and faith. There may be something that you want to happen right now, but God's telling you to wait. And we think, I really need this to happen now. But it's not God's timing. And we're called by the Lord to wait, to wait on his timing. And the fact is, many times, living by faith simply means that I need to be quiet and wait on the Lord. Two Psalms I want you to think about, I mentioned Psalm 4610, which is this, be still and know that I am God. God is literally saying there, shut up, (laughs) be still, be quiet, shut up and know that I'm God. Just shut your mouth and be still and wait on me. That's what God is saying there. Another one is this, this is Psalm 2714. It says, wait for the Lord, be strong and let your heart take courage, wait for the Lord. Many times living by faith simply means being quiet before God and doing nothing and just waiting on the Lord in faith and trusting his timing. Okay, so number one, God still speaks today. Number two, we must believe God's word. Number three, God's timing is perfect. And number four is the last one. It's about John the Baptist. John the Baptist exalted Jesus, and he's an example for us. John the Baptist is an example for us. John the Baptist had a particular role as the forerunner of Jesus, the Messiah. Obviously, that doesn't apply to us. But, and this is important, John grew into a man. If you fast forward 30 years, whatever, 33 years later after this, John the Baptist grew into a man who was not concerned about his own glory. He was concerned about Jesus' glory, and he's an example for us. I'm going to read a section from John 3, and we're going to see the heart of John the Baptist. We may have it on a slide. This is John chapter 3, verses 28 to 30. Yeah, listen to what John says here. I love this. He says, You yourselves bear bear me witness that I said, I am not the Christ, but I have been sent before him, which is exactly what Gabriel prophesied. John goes on and said, The one who has the bride is the bridegroom. The friend of the bridegroom who stands and hears him rejoices greatly at the bridegroom's voice. Therefore, this joy of mine is now complete. Now listen to what John says about Jesus. He says, he must increase, but I must decrease. This is so beautiful because John the Baptist exalted Jesus. He's an example for us. John rejoiced at the sound of Jesus' voice. John the Baptist rejoiced when he heard the bridegroom's Voice, and his joy was made complete by serving Christ, by pointing people to Jesus. And John did not want to glorify himself. He wanted to bring glory to Jesus Christ. And notice this, John said, Jesus must increase. Jesus must increase and I must decrease. It must happen. And this is where his joy was made complete. And listen, we should imitate John the Baptist. This Christmas season, my prayer for every one of us is this, that we can honestly say with John, Jesus must increase in my life, but I must decrease. It must happen. And when it happens, the irony is, you think you're going to disappear and become nothing, but the irony is it leads to abounding joy. Let's be people who say this, I must get smaller, but Jesus must get bigger. 
Jesus must increase. He must increase so much in my life that I'm willing to surrender everything to him. Jesus must increase so much in my heart that truly the chief desire of my life is to bring honor to him. Jesus must get so big that the greatest joy I have is hearing his voice and living for him. That's what I want for us, for us to say Jesus must increase so much in my life that there's no greater honor than for me to fade into the background and for him to get the glory. Listen, church, this Christmas, let's be people who, again, who say with John the Baptist, Jesus must increase, but I must decrease. Amen. Amen. Let's pray together. Our Father and our God, we love you and praise you. Father, thank you for sending your son to be our savior and king. I've said it before, I wouldn't send my kids to die for sinful people. I just wouldn't do it. So thank you, Father, for sending your son. Jesus, thank you for leaving the palaces of heaven to become a man, take on flesh, and live among the filth and dump of this world to save a people for yourself. I wouldn't do it, but I'm not loving like you, Lord. So we praise you for your love for us. And I do pray, Lord, I do pray that we would be people who understand that you still speak today. We'd be people who want to be in your word and hearing you talk to us through your word. We'd be people who listen and, and again, who's the, the chief joy of our lives, Lord, would be, Jesus, that you would increase and we would decrease. Please, Lord, allow us to be people who just give up the rights to our lives and give it over to you. And that our joy would be found in hearing your voice like John the Baptist and serving you. And that you would just get so huge in our lives that we just wouldn't care about us getting praise and honor and glory and all that. We would just want you to have it. So we love you. Thank you for this day. Thank you for my church, Lord. Thank you how encouraging they are to me. God, this church is such a blessing to me. Thank you. You've surrounded us with people who love you and who love each other. So thank you, Lord. We love you. We pray this in Jesus' name. Amen.